open your word and in your word to hear your voice. It is our prayer this day, Father, that you would open our hearts and minds to hear. Give us receptive hearts, Father. May we hear your voice as your word is proclaimed, and may you accomplish all of your good purposes within us. Father, we ask these things for our own good, yes, but also for the glory of Jesus Christ. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, like you apparently, uh, our church as well reads consecutively through the Word of God. That is, years ago, we began with Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and every Lord's Day, we take another passage of Scripture, a chapter or a portion of a chapter, and the plan is to continue that until we get to the end of Revelation, and then, if I'm still around, we'll start again. We do this in obedience, of course, to Paul's exhortation to give attention to the public reading of the Scripture. Other churches obey that command differently, but that's how we do it. We read a portion of the Scripture as a whole, but we also work our way through the book of Psalms as well. And I think we're on the third or fourth cycle through the book of Psalms. As a preacher... I find that this is sometimes a frustrating experience. With very rare exceptions, I preach through books of the Bible. I'm currently preaching through Luke, for instance. In November of 2020, I began with Luke chapter 1, verse 1. Last week, we were in Luke's account of the Olivet Discourse at the end of chapter 21. And my co-elder is taking the first passage of chapter 22 this morning. And when I'm back next week, it's just the next passage. In that way, we seek to imitate Paul in preaching the whole counsel of God. But that brings along with it sometimes a bit of frustration, because as Our men are reading and commenting on the Scripture as we're reading through the Scripture. We often come to passages, and I will sit there as we're reading through, and as my men are commenting on it, and I will be saying to myself, I really want to preach that. And those opportunities just don't come along that often because we're preaching through books of the Bible. So when I get the opportunity to do what I'm doing this morning, to come to another church, that's my chance. So I want to thank you for that this morning, because what we're about to examine together is one of those passages. Now, as always, it's necessary when we come to any portion of the Word of God to begin examining the passage in the contextual setting in which we find it. Whenever I open the Word, I try not to assume that all who hear me have a familiarity with a, with a particular passage that I'm going to preach. And that's even more true when we come to a passage in the Old Testament. So, 
as we set the context of this particular text, let's begin with the basics. First, turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 6. We'll be looking primarily this morning at verse 16 and a couple other verses around it. But there in Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 16, we read this, that the Lord says, and He's speaking through Jeremiah, "...stand by the ways, and see, and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is, and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls." But they said, "...we will not." walk in it. So again, let's just set the background and the context for this. As you may know, the prophetic books of the Old Testament are divided up into the major prophets and the minor prophets. When you hear those terms, don't think baseball. We're not talking about the better prophets and, you know, the so-so prophets. We're just talking about size, that's all. The major prophets are longer books than the minor prophets. And these, as, as we come through and we're looking at Jeremiah, for instance, Jeremiah is one of the major prophets, but who is this man, Jeremiah? Who are the people to whom he prophesied? Well, at the very beginning of the book, we learn that Jeremiah was called to serve God as a prophet while still a relatively young man. He was the son of Hilkiah from the priestly tribe of Levi. And he was from the land of Anathoth, which was, we're told, in the land of Benjamin. Now, as I said, he was from a family of priests. He was not a Benjamite or a Benjaminite, or however you want to say that. He was not from the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Levite. But the Levites, of course, lived all around Israel in the lands of the other tribes. And here he is in the land of the tribe of Benjamin. And he is from a family of priests. And we get all of that from the very first verse of the book of Jeremiah. We know, too, that he was a young man because in Chapter 1, verse 6, Jeremiah himself says, I don't know how to speak because I am a youth. So God called him to be a prophet, and like so many others that God calls, he doesn't feel himself to be prepared for the ministry. He doesn't deem himself to be adequate for the calling which has been placed upon him. You'll remember that Moses used the same excuse when God spoke to him out of the burning bush. Whenever I read a passage like that, I always have to laugh a little bit. God commands someone to speak, and they reply by telling God that, well, you know, I'm not really very good at this sort of thing. And I always imagine God saying to himself, really, you think that's your only problem? (laughs) I understand that, of course. When I was in high school, my greatest fear was getting up in front of the class for an oral presentation. In fact, there was a survey performed a number of years ago that found that the two top greatest fears that people have are public speaking and death. In that order. (laughs) Which means that people would rather be laying in the casket than giving the eulogy. 
I could certainly have raised the same objection that Moses and Jeremiah raised. I was 17 the first time I preached, and as my wife can attest, it was an unmitigated disaster. But looking back on it now, I realize something I didn't realize then. There are far more important reasons why, from a human perspective, God should have called someone else. We could start with sin and ignorance. That's pretty much covers everything. Here's the problem. Sinful, ignorant people are all God has to work with. And that holds true whether we're talking about preaching or any other way in which God calls us to serve. The good news is God is sufficient to overcome all of our issues and all of our inadequacies in order to make us profitable servants in His kingdom. And that's certainly what He did for Jeremiah. Now, Jeremiah is called primarily to minister to the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah. You'll remember that after the reign of Solomon, the nation divided into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, which is known as Judah. Roughly 135 years prior to Jeremiah's ministry, Assyria came down against the northern kingdom and took them into captivity. So Jeremiah is going to minister primarily to those in the southern kingdom, the capital of which was Jerusalem. And Jeremiah is not going to have an easy time of it. His ministry will not be what we typically refer to as successful. As a young man enters into the ministry, when a young man takes his first church, for instance, he has dreams of all the great things that he's going to do. I suppose there are exceptions to this, but it's very common. He just knows that his church is going to explode under his leadership. They're going to grow, and pretty soon he's going to be asked to speak at various conferences, and then will come the radio programs, and and he'll write a few books, and he'll get on some TV shows, you know, maybe Dr. Phil, is he still around? I I don't know. Well, the size of the average American congregation is 65 people. So there are obviously a lot of disappointed young pastors. There's a songwriter out of Nashville named Andy Gullihorn, and he wrote about this from the perspective of a songwriter who dreams of having his songs recorded by all the big-named artists and seeing his name in lights and receiving all the awards. And the song that Gullihorn wrote is all about trying to figure out why that hasn't happened. And as I listened to that song, it struck me that those kinds of dreams and disappointments are exactly what so many pastors deal with. Well, songwriting is kind of a hobby of mine, so I stole that and reworked it from a pastor's perspective. Trying to figure out why he's not a household name, why he's not being invited on all the talk shows. And the only thing that he can think of that was holding him back was that he didn't want to wear skinny jeans. 
(laughs) Because if you're going to be a big name in evangelicalism, apparently, if you're going to be a celebrity pastor, it seems like that's the key, right? Wear some skinny jeans and you'll be amazing. Well, I'm not wearing skinny jeans. Pastor Joey's not wearing skinny jeans. And yet, I trust we are being faithful to what God has called us to be and to do. Here's where those kinds of dreams become problematic. There are some men who not only entertain those fantasies, they chase after them. And they lose sight of the fact that success in ministry isn't about numbers and book deals, it's about faithfulness. Well, Jeremiah didn't even get a chance to dream about so-called success because as soon as God called him, God told him, that's not happening. By that metric, Jeremiah is going to be a huge failure. God essentially says to Jeremiah, hey, Jerry, this is what you're going to do. And this is what you're not going to do. You're not going to stand in arenas telling people how wonderful they are. You're not going to be an arena preacher. You're going to be a street preacher. I don't want you to tell people how great they are. And I don't want you to tell people how they can have their best life now. I want you to tell people Judgment is coming. That was his message. As a result of their sin, judgment is coming. God is very specific when he describes what he's doing through Jeremiah. If you look again in chapter 1 in verse 16, this is what God says to Jeremiah. I will pronounce my judgments on them concerning all their wickedness, whereby they have forsaken me and have offered sacrifices to other gods and worshipped the works of their own hands. God is going to bring the Babylonians down against Judah. The Babylonians are going to be God's instrument to punish Judah for their apostasy and their idolatry. And when Jeremiah warns the people concerning that impending judgment, they are going to hate him for it. Look at verse 18 of chapter 1. Now behold, I have made you today as a fortified city and as a pillar of iron, as walls of bronze against the whole land, to the kings of Judah, to its princes, to its priests, to the people of that land. They will fight against you. But they will not overcome you, for I am with you to deliver you. The very people that Jeremiah is warning will come against him. And so the natural question to ask is, why would they fight against Jeremiah and reject his message? Well, it's not hard to understand. They are a proud, stiff-necked, rebellious people. They have turned their backs on Yahweh, and they have gone after idols, but they don't see it that way. This is something we need to understand about the idolatry of Israel. 
They can't believe God is angry with them. They are His covenant people, after all. They have Abraham for their father, just like the Pharisees said to Jesus. So when Jeremiah comes, they not only ignore him, they not only turn a deaf ear to his preaching, but they seek to do him harm. See, one of the contributing factors to this response was that Jeremiah is not the only prophet in the land. There were other prophets. A few of those prophets were proclaiming the same message as Jeremiah. A very few. Zephaniah, Habakkuk, Ezekiel were all contemporaries of Jeremiah. But there were other prophets as well who were proclaiming a message directly opposed to the message of Jeremiah. Instead of warning the people about the judgments to come, these false prophets provided a false hope. So in chapter 6, you read in verses 13 and 14, For from the least of them, even to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for gain. And from the prophet, even to the priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the brokenness of my people superficially, saying, peace, peace, but there is no peace. And that's the world, that's the context into which Jeremiah comes with his message of judgment. But, but we're dealing with Yahweh here. And so as we would expect, judgment is not the only message that Jeremiah carries. Intermingled with his declaration of judgment is also a promise of grace, There is a promise of mercy if the people will repent and turn from their sins. I saw an interesting video some time ago. It was a a short clip of a talk given by Jordan Peterson in which he was discussing the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And what I found so interesting was the fact that Peterson was so clueless. Apparently, he had written a book in which he discussed these things, and in that book, he spoke of the the difference between the Old Testament God and the New Testament God, as if they were different gods. He considered the Old Testament God to be much more wrathful and judgmental than the God of the New Testament. Now, it's not a surprise that an unconverted man would come to that conclusion. It's not a new idea. People have been saying similar things going all the way back to at least the second century with a heretic named Marcion. But what I found interesting is that by the time of this lecture from which this clip was taken, Peterson had changed his mind somewhat. It seems that a friend of his, another Canadian psychologist, had convinced him that the view he had put forth in his book, and this was what caught my attention, was too Christianized. That is, his friend was saying that the reason Peterson saw this supposed dichotomy between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament was because his view was too Christianized. And that seemed exceedingly strange to me. And I hope it seems strange to you as well. 
because I cannot think of an understanding of the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament that is less Christian than that. Peterson may have some helpful things to say about the current cultural divide in the Western world today, but when it comes to Christianity, we need to pray for him because he needs Jesus. In terms of Christianity, he is a blind guide. If he had only read the book of Jeremiah, then he might have come to understand the truth of the matter, which is that grace is just as pervasive in the Old Testament as as wrath is in the New Testament. In one way or another, whenever judgment is declared, mercy is offered, and it is in that context of announcing judgment, yet promising mercy if they would return and repent, that our text comes into play this morning. Thus says the Lord, stand by the ways and see and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. There is grace. There is mercy. Do this and live. But they said, we will not walk in it. Yahweh is speaking to the nation through Jeremiah, and He speaks as if speaking to a man who is lost. A man who has lost his way, and the advice he is given is to stand by the ways and see. That's really good advice. It reminds me of the old saying if you find yourself in a ditch, stop digging. If you're lost, stop walking. Stand there, regroup. Thinks things through. So here's a man who has lost his way, and he's told to stand there. Stand by the ways and see. And as he stands there and looks, he finds that he's on a, at, a, at a crossroads. There are two paths. That's why he's told to stand at the ways, plural. He can't stand there wavering between two ways forever. He's eventually got to make a decision. Which way? Which path? He's got to choose, but which will he choose? Now, I'm going to admit to being a bit of a Neanderthal when it comes to poetry. But if you forced me to name a favorite poem, it would be The Road Not Taken by Robert Frost. Perhaps because it's about the only poem I know. Frost writes, two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and sorry I could not travel both and be one traveler, there I stood and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth. Then took the other as just as fair, having perhaps the better claim, because it was grassy and wanted wear, though as for that the passing there had warned them really about the same. And both that morning equally lay, and leaves no step had trodden black. I kept the first for another day. Yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. 
I shall be telling this with a sigh somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in the wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by. And that has made all the difference. The reason, I think, why that poem strikes me as it does is because I see in it something that Frost never intended. I see the gospel there. I see it through a gospel lens, and I know that Jesus is the road less traveled, and in my life, Jesus has made all the difference. The problem with Frost's poem, of course, is that in the end, as he looks back over his life, he sees that his choice ultimately did make a difference. But as he's standing there, in that moment, making that decision, deliberating about which road to choose, in that moment, he doesn't really think it's going to matter. And it's at this important point that, like those paths, Frost and Jeremiah diverge. For Jeremiah, there's only one choice. It matters a great deal which path you choose. We are to ask for the ancient paths, because that's where the good way is. And finding that ancient path, we are to walk in it. It is there that we are promised we will find rest for our souls. Other paths don't provide that. Only that one path will give rest. Other paths will lead to other destinations. For Frost, it doesn't really matter because for him the journey is the thing and one destination is as good as another. But Jeremiah is telling us that the reason the journey matters is because the destination matters more. So through Jeremiah, the Lord is presenting Israel with a picture. And it's the picture of a traveler, a wanderer. There is a man on a journey, and he has come to a crossroads. And God says, you've got to make a choice. And before you make that choice, you better ask about that choice. You better get some counsel Stand by the ways and see and ask for the ancient paths. Get some advice here because this is the most important choice you're ever going to make. Find someone who is going to point you in the right direction. Someone who is going to tell you which path is the ancient path. Now, note, the first command there in verse 16, stand by the ways. What does that tell you? It tells you that prior to this command, this man is not standing. He's moving. He's walking. He didn't know where he was going, but he was on his way. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? We've all got GPS now. But some of us are old enough to remember when a common source of humor was found in the male tendency to never ask directions. The attitude of the male of our species always seemed to be, I don't know where I'm going, but I'm making good time. But God speaks to His people and says, listen, the first thing you need to do is stop. Stop walking. Stop moving. Look around. 
See your situation and then ask for help. Ask for counsel. Ask for direction. But before you do anything else, you need to stop and see. And then you need to ask. Of course, the problem with the people of Judah is that they had entirely forgotten the destination. If we ask for directions, typically we say, all right, look, here's where I'm going. This is my destination. Can you help me get from here to there? But that's not what the Lord says to Judah. They don't even know what their destination is. So right now, due to their condition, all he says to them is, look for the ancient paths. And why the ancient paths? Because the ancient paths will lead to the ultimate destination, which, as God knows, is best for them. Isn't this what the gospel is? Isn't this what the gospel does? There are multitudes of people out there, and many perhaps in here, who not only don't know the destination, they don't even know there is a destination. And they certainly aren't looking for it. They're living their lives as if they've already arrived at the destination. As if this is all there is. And when we come to them with the gospel, what are we saying? We're saying, stop. Stand still. Look at who you are and look at what you're doing. Understand your condition. Understand your need. Listen to me because I can point you to the way. I know the way which will lead you to rest. Because I found rest. And the good way God says through Jeremiah, is the ancient way. The good way is the old way. The good way is the ancient path. Now be careful here. The Lord isn't saying that everything old is good and everything new is bad. It's not what He's saying at all. I'm standing up here with my sermon notes on an iPad. I'm not down on technology I do find that the older I get, the more technology confuses me, but technology is a good thing. But here in the book of Jeremiah, there is a specific context in which the Lord is making that distinction. So Jeremiah is not just making a blanket statement that old is good and new is bad. He's setting forth a contrast, and that contrast is between these two ways. One way is the way that God has set forth in His Word, the ancient paths, and the other way is the way which Judah has chosen. The way, that, that way is, in this context, a new path, which are the paths for Judah of idolatry. Remember what the people of Judah had done. They had forsaken the commands of God to chase after novelties. When Israel engaged in idolatry, they were deceiving themselves. They rationalized their idolatry by telling themselves they were still worshiping Yahweh. They were just doing it a little differently. 
They wanted to be like the nations around them, who all had visual representations of their gods. When Aaron took the gold from the people and created that golden calf, we're told in Exodus 32, verse 5, that Aaron built an altar before the golden calf, and he made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord, to Yahweh. When Aaron created that golden calf, he wasn't saying, this is some other god. In his mind, he was creating a representation of Yahweh. They were still worshiping Yahweh, so it must be okay. They discovered differently. And we who name the name of Christ have to ask, has anything really changed? The desire, both for novelty and to be like everyone around us, is part and parcel of the fallen human heart. Nobody wants to be different. It's uncomfortable to be different. Even those who think they are being nonconformists are just conforming to a different subset of the population, and of the culture. But they're still conforming to their own group. Isn't that what people mean, after all, when they say that the church needs to be relevant? Brothers and sisters, the Word of God is eternally relevant. We don't make the Word relevant. We don't make the Gospel relevant. What someone really means when they say that is that we've got to make everything look like the world so they're more comfortable with us. So much of the church, brothers and sisters, has forsaken the ancient paths because we want to be like those around us. We want to be relevant. We want something new and novel and exciting. And we think that the ancient paths are not enough. The Bible so old. It's been around forever. Everyone has the Bible. What do you have especially for me? It's so ancient. And so we look elsewhere, and we look to the culture. Culture is always new. Culture is always, by definition, relevant always cutting edge. And so much of the church stands at the crossroads and says, let's take that new path in which we immerse ourselves in the culture. And then maybe the world will see that we like the same things they do, and then they'll think Jesus is cool. <laughs> what a childish unbiblical way of thinking. Many churches have chosen the path of politics. That's a really crowded path today. And I can talk about these things because I'm leaving after this. And <laughs> <laughs> there are so-called churches on the left of the political spectrum 
that have strayed so far from the ancient paths that they advocate the murder of children in the womb and a sexual ethic which no Christian prior to the late 20th century would ever recognize. And then you have churches on the right engaging in idolatry every bit as heinous as ancient Israel. The difference being that their idolatry is cloaked in a cover of patriotism. How many churches devote their worship services on the Sunday before the 4th of July not to the worship of the triune God, not to the proclamation of His Word, but to the praise of an earthly nation and the proclamation of a particular political philosophy? And Yahweh says to us, as He says to ancient Judah, ask for the ancient paths. That is, ask for the paths which existed before the latest cultural trend. The paths that existed before the United States was ever a thought in the mind of a man. Ask for the ancient paths which constitute the good way. And what is the good way? It is the way that is marked out by the word of the living God. Look at verse 19. Hear, O earth, behold, I am bringing disaster on this people, the fruit of their plains, because they have not listened to my words. And as for my law, they have rejected it also. They have not listened, and what they have heard, they have rejected. But if they will ask, if they will follow, if they will walk in that ancient path, there is a promise given, a gracious promise indeed. If you do this, verse 16 says, you will find rest for your souls. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 11. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will what? Give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and I will give you rest for your souls. Our Lord was quoting the very words that we find here in Jeremiah 6.16. According to the New Testament use of this passage, where do we find rest for our souls? What is that ancient path? It is Jesus. By coming to Christ, taking the yoke of Christ, learning of Christ, we will find rest. For it's in coming to Christ who Himself is the way bringing ourselves under His yoke, submitting our minds and wills to His Word, that is the way that we find rest for our souls. And there is no other way. When we look at this text, and we see the context in which it comes to us, and we ask the question that should inevitably follow, how do we obey? We are told here what to do. 
we are told to stand by the ways and see and ask for the ancient paths. We're told that if we do, we will find rest for our souls. But how? What does that look like? What does that mean to you and to me and to the man on the street? We're told what it means in verse 17. I set a watchman over you, saying, listen to the sound of the trumpet. Listen to the sound of the trumpet. You say, what trumpet? I need to go buy some Louis Armstrong records? Maybe Miles Davis, more to your liking? Is there a secret message, maybe, if I play them backwards? The Lord is referring, of course, to a common method of defense which was utilized in the ancient world. God said, I've set a watchman over you. Ancient cities would be enclosed by walls, of course, to defend against foreign armies. And upon those walls, they would set watchmen. And it was the responsibility of the watchman to keep watch. And when they saw threats coming in the distance, They were to sound the alarm, which in the ancient world would have been a trumpet of some kind, a shofar. Well, who are the watchmen about whom God is speaking? The prophets are the watchmen. Those who warn of impending judgment are the watchmen. Those who proclaim the gospel are the watchmen. This is an image that we see repeatedly in the book of Ezekiel. So God has sent watchmen. He has sent His prophets like Jeremiah. And Jeremiah is sounding the trumpet. Danger is coming. Pay attention. Pay heed to the warning. And He has been faithful to warn the nation, but the people have disregarded His warning. He has told them which path to take. And they have said, We will not walk in it. He has blown the trumpet, and they have said, we will not listen. That was ancient Judah. What about you? What about you? Which path have you chosen? Have you listened to the trumpet I'm blowing it right now. Will you listen? Will you heed the warning of the trumpet or will you ignore it? Is, when Ezekiel speaks of the watchman, he sets two different scenarios before us. In the first, the watchman sees the danger coming, but he neglects to warn the people. And God tells those watchmen through Ezekiel that if that's you, If you see the danger and you neglect to warn the people, then the inevitable blood that will flow is on your head, watchman. But then he says, if you see the danger and you do blow the trumpet, you do sound the warning, then the blood which comes is not on your head. It's on the head of those who did not Listen, I'm blowing the trumpet. I'm fulfilling my responsibility as a watchman. 
And I know Pastor Joey is fulfilling his responsibility. He's blowing the trumpet. And everyone who hears the Word of God, everyone who hears the Gospel, has to respond. They can either respond as Judah did and say, I'm not going to listen. Or they can take heed of the message. They can see the danger that is coming for them. Do you see the danger coming? Because God is still a God of judgment. He is still a God of wrath. And yet, He is still a God of grace and mercy. And He holds that mercy out to you in the Gospel. If you heed the trumpet, then you will obey the Lord's command to follow the ancient paths. But heeding that trumpet must come first. You won't listen to the instructions unless you've heeded the warning. Unless you know there is danger coming. So which path are you on? Are you walking the ancient path? Have you heard and heeded the watchman? And having heard the watchman, have you come to God through Jesus Christ, confessing your sin and turning from it? Have you entered into that path by grace? And are you now, by grace, walking in that ancient path of obedience, performing the good works which God has prepared before you that you should walk in it? What if you're not on that ancient path? What if today, having heard the trumpet, you recognize you are on the wrong path? You've taken the path of sin and self. You've been attempting to blaze your own trail. Here is the glorious good news of the grace of God. No matter how far along you may be on that other path, every time you hear the Gospel, you come again to another crossroad. And you can make another choice. Every time you hear the Gospel, it's another opportunity to change your direction and to get on that ancient path. Turn around. That's what repentance means. You're going one way, turn around and go the other way. Get on the ancient path. It's not too late. While you have breath, it is never too late. In terms of the Gospel, there is never a point at which you can say, I can't get there from here. Jesus is the way. And you can always get to Jesus, no matter where you are right now. The way, the ancient path, goes through the cross. That's what Christian discovered in John Bunyan's great allegory, Pilgrim's Progress. He couldn't get on the way until he came to the cross. And when he came to the cross, that burden of sin which he carried fell off his back and rolled into the empty tomb. And he was free of it forever. And he found that 
ancient path. He got on the way which led him eventually to the celestial city. And that is still the way. It's a narrow way. But it's the only way. He, Jesus Christ, is the way, the truth, and the life. And He is the only way. He is the ancient path. Come to Christ. Get on the right road. And He will keep you until He brings you to His determined destination. The celestial city. Heaven. Glory. To be with Christ in His presence forever. Because after all, that's what makes heaven heaven. Heaven is only heaven because Jesus is there. So Jesus is both the path and the destination. Praise God. I trust that this morning you are on that ancient path. And if not, I pray that the Spirit of God would so work within you to convict you of your sin and to put you on that path. Father, thank You for Your Word today. Thank You for the ancient path. Thank You, Father, for Jesus. Father, those of us who know You through Jesus Christ look forward to that day when our walking is done, when we enter into His presence, when we finally arrive at that destination which You are bringing us to. But Father, we pray for those who have heard Your voice through Your Word today and are not yet on that path. Father, give them no rest until they find their rest in Jesus. It is in His name and for His glory we ask these things. Amen.